Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. This week, we're looking to nature to solve some of today's biggest problems, from climate change to water shortages, and how spiders might hold the key to making the strongest material known to man. Plus, why Bruce Willis might be making you fat, why the Arctic ice sheets are melting, despite what's been in headlines this week, and why thousands of languages could be on the brink of extinction. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, up first, we're going to talk about emails. These were a product of the computing revolution of the 1990s, which brought us the internet, and they've been used by growing numbers of the general public and businesses for the last 15 years now. Emailing your travel agent or even your bank for advice is one thing, but how would you feel about conducting a consultation with your doctor this way? With a rising population and increasing pressure on healthcare services, medical practitioners are now looking for ways to improve the efficiency of the services they provide. And in an article in the British Medical Journal this week, GP Emma Richards, based at Imperial College London, is concerned about safety, confidentiality and workload. We'll hear from her in a minute, but first I spoke to Eleanor Gunning, who's also a GP, and she's based at University College London. She says email can work. We're using email to communicate in our day-to-day lives and in many other industries, and medicine seems to have fallen behind a little bit. I've been lucky enough to have experience of working in a surgery where they have used emails, and I think that it's improved care for patients. Certainly it's improved access and convenience, and the doctors have also found it very useful. What sorts of questions or communications have the doctors at the surgeries at which you have worked been exchanging with patients? I found that the emails that our patients sent were actually really very appropriate. We generally find that after an episode of care that's been a face-to-face episode, because I fully admit that email can't substitute all the things that you can do in a face-to-face communication and the fact that you can do a physical examination. But then what I found really useful and the patients found convenient is that the follow-ups could be done through email. So you can communicate test results. The patient could tell you if nothing was improving in two weeks. And I think simple medical conditions and certainly facilitating follow-up, self-care, communication of results, I think it can be a very useful addition to the sorts of communication we already use. Emma Richards. I do think that there are some concerns, though. Anything sort of new to be implemented really does need to be sort of robust and, and backed up by the evidence. And I think at the moment, the majority of GPs are a little bit wary of this. I think some of the main concerns, you know, around safety, the sort of things that they might want to talk about on email, certain follow-ups for simple conditions, perhaps that would be appropriate, but actually there's no way of limiting that, you know, what prevents someone from emailing about an episode of chest pain on a Friday night that's not going to get read till Monday. And you know, there's also concerns regarding confidentiality and actually GP time. GP days are sort of 10 to 12 hours long and most of the time you don't get a moment between seeing patients, doing the paperwork, going on visits, taking phone calls. 
I think it would be very difficult to squeeze that somewhere into the day. I think without a lot of sort of careful planning and more investment in general practice, we certainly need more general practitioners in order to provide this kind of service. I just can't see at the moment how it could be done. So, Eleanor, how do you manage patient expectations? Emma makes a very important point that mm. she's off on her lunch break when during her lunch hour she's seeing five home visits, comes back to the surgery, and in the meantime, 15 emails have turned up. None of them are prioritised because they just turn up in time order. Mm. How do you know which ones you're going to deal with first? You've now got a waiting room full of patients expecting to be seen. That was my concern when I started working in a practice that used email. I thought, how on earth am I going to manage all this as well as everything else? And I think it's all to do with the actual the planning of the service. It takes time and investment and very careful planning to actually ensure that your email service runs smoothly and is safe. Basically, all the emails that would come to our practice would then go into a central inbox that would be reviewed by one of the admin staff. So they would bounce on emails to you. So you weren't getting emails that weren't relevant to you that were about very urgent things because they would be picked off and given to the, the on-call duty doctor. And when we took the consent and they signed the form or told us verbally, yes, they were happy for us to use this particular email address, they were told that the email used should be for non-urgent things, that it wasn't going to be checked any more than every few hours. They might not get a response for a couple of days. So it would discourage people from using it inappropriately. And I really felt that that did actually help educate our patients as to the best use of email so that actually they could use it for the quick and simple things. And also from a doctor's point of view, when you're trying to respond to these questions, it's actually a lot easier to respond to five queries from patients via email than it is via telephone because it means that you can actually get through to people. You might be a little bit too late to be calling patients or if you do call patients, quite often you have to call them three or four times to get through. So you did feel like actually you were being more efficient. Emma, do you think that this is a safe approach, just sending an email? You don't know actually really who it's gone to or who it's come from, do you? You also don't know if the patient's read it, so the advice you've given them about the chest pain they were having, you don't know if that's actually been digested and, and acted upon. And you also don't know how the patient would be responding emotionally to that email, whether it be test results, whether it be advice about what needs to be done next. So you don't get that feedback from the patient that you also would get in a face-to-face -face consultation or in a telephone consultation. We don't know that you're sending the email to that person, to that patient. In March, there was um, an email hacking scam in which a lot of people were told that their blood results showed they had cancer. So we'd have to make sure that we could safeguard against hacking and that sort of thing. And educating patients would be one way of doing that. But in terms of losing that non-verbal communication that you get in a face-to-face -face consultation and over the phone, in terms of understanding, there's certainly more potential for miscommunication, misunderstanding and possible clinical error. Emma, what do the patients want? Because at the end of the day, they're the most important people in this conversation. Patients want different things and we need to try and provide a service that meets everybody's needs. Above all, it's, it's very important that we reach out to those people that are in the greatest need and those that are elderly, infirm and certain sort of socioeconomic and ethnic minority groups. There has been some studies to show that these people tend not to use email. I think in that sense that telephone is different from the internet because most people do have a phone, most people can pick up the phone. I think that some patients will find that email would be convenient for them, but you need to make sure that everybody gets a good service and good access and it's going to be difficult to, to provide a, a service that suits everybody. 
Eleanor, your thoughts based on probably what Emma said and any concluding mm. points you want to make? We shouldn't substitute every face-to-face encounter with an email. That's also absurd and not appropriate. But there are certain interactions that I think could be amenable to email use and that could benefit patients. GPs Eleanor Gunning and Emma Richards debating the practicalities of using email to communicate with your doctor. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, by email, of course, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or find us on Twitter at Naked Scientist. Now, if you listened to our programme last week, you'll have heard us discussing global warming and the fact that significant temperature increases have been recorded in the southern oceans, along with glaciers melting in western Antarctica. Well, this week, the focus shifted to the Northern Hemisphere, with the Daily Mail running an article with the headline, Myth of Arctic Meltdown. Stunning satellite images show summer ice cap is thicker and covers 1.7 million square kilometres more than two years ago, despite Al Gore's prediction it would be ice-free by now. The article showed a graph charting a steady decline in ice coverage over the last 10 years and then a rebound where ice cover appears to have doubled in the last two years. Listener Aaron Hurwitz was confused and wrote in to ask how this squares with the global warming that researchers claim is occurring. With us is Professor Eric Wolfe from the University of Cambridge. So Eric, what's going on here? Why does it look as though the Arctic ice sheets are recovering? So we're talking about the ice that's frozen on top of the Arctic Ocean and every year at the end of winter there's a maximum amount of ice that covers most of the Arctic Ocean, most of what you'd see between Siberia and Canada and Greenland and then that retreats by somewhere between 50 and 70 percent at the moment during each summer. So what they're looking at is the average amount of ice in August, so pretty close to the minimum and that's clearly trending downwards quite rapidly by around about 10 percent every decade. But it does vary from year to year because of various natural reasons. And 2012, which is the year that the Daily Mail picks on us two years ago, happened to be a really low year. And 2014 actually looks very similar to 2013. So if you take any 10-year period in the record that I've got in front of me, then it just looks like a lot of noise, actually. It just looks as though it's going up and down. But as soon as you look at the whole 37 years that we've got satellite data, it's very obvious that the sea ice is decreasing 2014 is still lower than any year between the beginning of the satellite record in 1979 and 2006, so it's certainly not a high sea ice year. So it's not really that the ice is recovering as such, it's just sort of natural fluctuations? Yeah, there's natural fluctuations, just as you wouldn't expect, you know, as you come into summer, you don't expect every day to be warmer than the one before, and it's the same thing as we're losing the ice slowly as due to global warming. You don't expect every year to be lower than the one before, there are lots of meteorological factors that can affect it. So this doesn't shed any doubt in your mind on the idea of global warming is happening and it is having these effects on the Arctic? No, none at all. I'm afraid there isn't really good news here. The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is continuing to increase pretty rapidly. That inevitably means that temperatures will warm. It won't be uniform around the globe and it won't be the same every year. Sometimes more heat goes into the ocean, sometimes more goes into the atmosphere. But I'm afraid as the Arctic warms, the ice does melt. So what is it that's causing these natural fluctuations within that kind of downwards trend? Well, it's mainly due to the meteorology in the Arctic, which determines how the ice moves around, because the amount of sea ice that's left is not only a function of the temperature of the ocean and the atmosphere, but it's also a function of where the ice actually gets moved to by the winds. So, for instance, in 2012, part of the cause was that 
just before, sometime in August, there was a big storm at a time when the ice was already quite thin and that big storm just broke the ice up and moved it all southwards into an area where it could melt. And that wasn't the complete reason. There were lots of things that pushed the ice around uh, and, and put it in one area or another, somewhere that's colder or somewhere that's warmer. But that does mean there can be quite big variations from year to year, actually especially at this, at, at this point of the year when the ice is already quite thin. So if there are so many factors going on, how do you go about making predictions about how the ice will be affected? I mean, there was this prediction from Al Gore that it would have all gone by now. How did he get that so wrong? <laughs> he was quoting a study that said that it might have disappeared by now and, and he made it sound as though he thought it would. But um, he got a little over-enthusiastic, I'm afraid. So what you do, I'm afraid the only way you can predict the future, because we haven't seen it yet, is by using models. Those models are based on the best physics that we have of understanding both how the climate works and how the ice responds to the climate. And so all you can do is to run these models with and without changing levels of carbon dioxide. And what, what the models are saying, it's a whole range of models from different countries, is that around this time of year, the ice will virtually have gone. There'll be a little bit of ice here and there, but a few percent only. The ice will virtually have gone by 2050. So it's not this year, it's not next year, it's not the best bet, uh, but it's not going to come back again either. So sometime within the next few decades. So you're putting all this kind of data that you have into a computer model and sort of simulating the future. But different people are still making different predictions. So how can the public decide who to trust? They're all making predictions that the ice is going to reduce. If you now run the model through the last 30 or 40 years, they're actually doing pretty well. They don't get quite as big fluctuations as we've seen, but they're not doing too badly. But all the models would predict that the ice is going to reduce. Exactly when there's no ice in September differs from model to model. If you think that, that we need to take action, you'll still think it, whether it's 2040 or 2070. And if you don't really care about it, then you still think you don't care about it. So not good news, unfortunately, then. Thank you. That was Professor Eric Wolf with his thoughts on the ongoing story of global warming. We think that about 7,000 distinct languages are being spoken around the world, but studies suggest that up to 90% of them are in danger of disappearing by the end of the century, which makes them more threatened than animals or plants. Now, Cambridge University biologist William Sutherland has discovered that the same criteria used to highlight endangered animal species can also identify threatened languages, meaning we can spot them more easily and we can take steps to preserve them. There are 6,900 languages around the world and curiously they're distributed in the same sort of patterns as where the richest abundance of animals are. So areas where there are most birds and most mammals are areas where there are most languages as well. So the areas that are tropical, the areas that are mountainous, the areas that have lots of forests both have lots of languages and lots of different bird species and mammal species. Why do you think that is? Because there are similar processes that cause speciation, uh, different species evolving, and languages to evolve. So if you have areas that are very stable, you can have a small population of humans living in that area persistently, isolated from other individuals and developing their own language. And similarly, you can have species occurring in isolation, evolving from other species and creating greater diversity. And is this 6,900 plus languages actually stable? Are the numbers saying about the same? Or are there new languages springing up all the time or are languages being lost? Well, languages do arise, 
but most languages in the world are declining, and very many of the languages are showing declines and sometimes quite rapid declines. So English, for example, is increasing rapidly, but many other languages are declining. So what was the question you were trying to address with this? What we're interested in is looking at the patterns of change of languages across the world. There have been lots of people sort of producing rather hand-waving arguments as to how they're changing. We wanted to apply quite a rigorous approach. And conservationists have an approach where they classify species according to how threatened they are. So the same criteria that could be used to define whether or not a species is endangered can also tell us whether a language might go extinct. Absolutely, you can apply exactly the same process. And if you do so, it turns out that languages are more uh, endangered than birds are or mammals are as a group. What are the big determinants of whether a language in an area will survive or whether it's going to go extinct? Languages that have a small population size seem to decline much more rapidly. And part of that makes a lot of sense, that if a language is only spoken by a few speakers, then it becomes less attractive to learn, and so the, the decline gets even more rapid. So as the population gets small, the rate of decline gets even faster, and so it gets smaller and smaller, and then they go extinct. In the same way, because we know when we look at animal populations, biologists talk about there being a threshold population size where if the population dips below a certain size, it's probably going to be curtains for that species. Do you see the same thing with languages then, that if there's not more than a certain threshold number of people speaking that language, it probably isn't going to last beyond that generation? Uh, Exactly right. So uh, as languages get scarce then they become scarcer and scarcer. It's exactly the same for species and for languages. And were there any areas around the world that were real hotspots? We know there are hotspots of species extinction. Therefore, do you see areas where languages are similarly threatened and do they overlap? There are some areas that are hotspots for extinction. So northern Australia has a lot of languages that are right on the edge of extinction. Northwest United States and Canada similarly have a cluster of languages that are very scarce and declining. Could something be done to preserve languages in the same way we're saying that you know species are important for biodiversity, they make the world richer? You can record the languages, and there's a lot of interest in doing that. And also with the internet, there are various people that are speaking these languages on the internet, and that they're managing to speak with a few other uh, speakers of that language elsewhere, and they're, bring, they're being brought together through modern technologies. Is it easy to preserve a language? I mean, I know you've said you can record things, but there are subtleties in language which, if you're not a speaker, you won't just be able to pick up on just by listening to a recording of someone talking through some of the words. Uh, absolutely. So you'll, you'll retain some of that information, but you won't retain all the subtleties. But why is it important? It's an important part of the global culture. And a lot of information is stored in those languages, a lot of knowledge is stored in those languages. And there tends to be a pattern that when people lose languages, they often regret it a generation or two later. And they see that as part of their culture that has disappeared and they very much regret having lost. So they see it as an important part of their identity, an important part of something they're proud of, and they're very sad when it goes. So in other words, although it may seem trivial to lose a language, there may well be social ramifications that will cross generations. Absolutely. And, and lots of information is stored. So lots of information about the species and the culture and the mythology and the songs also go when the language goes. That's William Sutherland from Cambridge University. His work has been published this week in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Journal. 
there's new research out this week which could explain at least part of the current rise in obesity. Apparently, it's all down to the movies we watch at the cinema or on the TV. It turns out action movies might be making you fat. Anna Tal from Cornell University in America logged how much food a group of volunteer students ate while watching either an action-packed movie or a more sedate TV talk show. The results showed it was the adrenaline fueled film that had them reaching for the snacks far more often, as he explained to Chris. Being distracted by watching TV can lead people to eat more. And what we wanted to find out is if different TV content can lead people to eat more or less, depending specifically on how dynamic the content was or how engaged they are with the content. So literally TV consumption can affect food consumption? Yeah. In what way? Basically, your your attention is limited. So the more you're paying attention to what you're watching on TV, the less you're paying attention to what you're eating. So if you're watching something that's very absorbing, you can just go on eating without realizing it. So how did you do the study? Uh, we randomly divided um, participants into three groups, and uh, each group watched 20 minutes of uh, programming. Uh, one group was given the, a segment of the action movie The Island, Another group was giving a segment of the talk show, the Charlie Rose show, which is a fairly laid-back, relaxed conversation uh, type of talk show. And the third group was given the same segment from the island, but without sound. And each person watching the, the shows was given an amount of uh, snacks that they had in front of them and they could eat while they're watching the shows. And when they were done watching the shows, we measured how much they'd eaten. What came out of it? What did you find? People who were watching the action movie ate more snacks than people who were watching uh, the talk show. Even people who watched the action movie without sound still ate considerably more than um, people watching the talk show. So they ate 46% more calories, even watching the action movie without sound. And with sound, they ate 65% more calories. Ah, but how many show. calories did they burn because it was exciting? <laughs> I don't think it works that way. I wish you could just watch like uh, exciting TV or sports TV and that would be your exercise. Was it genuinely that, that there's something about the content or the, the way that the programming works that makes people compulsively eat? I think so. So we're still doing some follow-up investigations to get a more precise idea of what the process is. But you can, to some extent, have divided attention or shift your attention. But if you're completely absorbed in something, then it'll be um, much more difficult to pay attention to something else. So if you're watching TV, you're not watching uh, what you eat. And does this in some way subvert your brain's circuitry, which logs how many calories are going in and tells you to stop eating? I would say more than that, it's you're paying attention to how you're feeling. So kind of getting that feeling that, you know, I've had so much chips, I already kind of feel like uh, throwing up, so maybe I should stop. Uh, if you're not paying attention to how you're feeling, you can just continue eating on automatic. Is, there a, is there a relationship between sex, I don't mean as in the physical act of sex, I mean gender and this effect? Do you see that men or women are more susceptible? Yeah, so, I mean, there's I mean, the probably a relation between that, the physical the, act of sex and but, food as well. But The reason I ask uh, this yeah. is, is because um, obviously we know that men find certain types of action movie more compelling than women. If I yeah. turn on a thriller, my, my wife will often fall asleep, whereas I'll still be watching it at midnight. So is there a susceptibility, a sex susceptibility in this effect, do you think? 
We do think so, and that's one of the initial pieces of evidence we got from uh, this study that gives us a hint about what's going on, because there was a bit higher consumption for uh, males watching the action film than for females. So it had more of an effect of them, and that might be because it engaged their attention more. So what would your recommendations be to people who are traipsing off to the cinema or to their home cinema armed with a box of popcorn? Uh, Leave the box of popcorn at home. (laughs) Now, I think it's partly about controlling how you'll act when you're unconscious. So just assume you're going to go into a movie coma if you're going into something that you're going to be swallowed up in. And either get a healthy snack, that way you'll you'll be eating uh, baby carrots versus uh, chips or chicken wings. Or just restrict the quantity you have. So just have a pre predetermined amount and then you know that's what you're going to eat because that's what you have. Even you can have a situation where you have more if you want to, but you'll need to actually go through the effort of getting up, walking all the way to the kitchen, which will also burn a lot of calories, and uh, and getting more. And, and setting things up that way versus just having a huge amount in front of you is going to prevent some of this uh, mindless eating trap. So basically make the fridge really hard to open. So you, <laughs> you at least burn some calories yeah, retrieving exactly. the, the supplementary so, snacks. Yeah, you'll do aerobic activity walking to the fridge and then you'll do um, muscle, uh, build your muscles opening it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Anna Tal with some tips to prevent you piling on the pounds. This is The Naked Scientist. And now moving on to our main topic this week, which is biomimicry. Biomimicry is the process by which scientists borrow from biology. They study how Mother Nature does things and then they use these ideas to overcome a problem they're grappling with, like how to produce clean energy, food medicines or new materials that are stronger or less harmful for the environment, like biodegradable plastics, for example. And with billions of years of experience, nature has some pretty smart solutions to these problems. So increasingly, creative minds are turning to nature for fresh design ideas, from tree leaves to butterfly wings or birds' beaks. Richard Bonser is a biomimic and he's a reader in design at Brunel University. He's with us now. Hello, Richard. Hello. So what is actually involved in doing the science of biomimicry? What does a scientist like you have to do? Really, it's two components. The first bit is that we really have to understand how the biological system works. And that could require lots of different sorts of knowledge, perhaps chemistry, mechanics, or even electrical things in the way that nerve cells work. And then having understood how the biological system works and identified the real clever mechanism, we then try and implement that into a new system, structure or material. Would, uh, talking of materials, a really good example of that be Velcro? Because the story of that was a man walking his dog, wasn't it? The story of Velcro is quite amazing. George the Mistral in 1948 took his dog for a walk. When he came home it was covered in uh, burdock seed burrs and he had the stroke of genius of recognising that these seeds were hitching a lift on a passing animal. But they had to attach firmly enough to stick to the animal and be carried away but not so firmly that they couldn't fall off at some point and then germinate. So he recognised that this was a really neat way of joining materials fabrics together in an easy to undo way. That's one example of how we can 
take inspiration from nature and then design a thing. But nature's more complicated than that because it doesn't just exist as isolated objects. There are whole systems where one object works with another object and, and so you have a sort of process. We could copy a process or, or even taking it a step further. If you look at the world around us, one thing feeds another so that even fleas have fleas and the whole thing goes round without any wastage. It's a natural system of recycling. Indeed, I think initially people tended to concentrate on a particular mechanism or material when they were researching biomimetics. But you can think a lot wider than that, looking at processes, communication networks and decision making. So it's not necessarily all about bits of material. Now tell us about the octopus that you've been involved in, because you've been working with the EU on a robotic system, haven't you? We, with partners at Reading University, were involved in a big European Union-funded project which was aiming to produce a soft-bodied robot inspired by the octopus. Our specific role in the project was designing a tough waterproof skin that had sensors and suckers on it. So this would protect the underlying mechanisms that enabled the robot to move around and could also tell it a bit about its environment. What was the outcome? I mean, did it work, this octopus? Yeah, the lead partners in Pisa managed to develop an integrated robotic octopus that had eight arms. It could use two for manipulating objects and another six arms to help it shuffle around underwater. So what can you do with it? Well, the idea really was to get a complete shift in the way we think about robotics because lots of robots have many rigid components, which means they're quite inflexible in the sorts of things that they can do. So the idea of making an entirely squidgy soft robot was that it could move in all sorts of different ways. I mean, an octopus is an incredible animal. It contains only one rigid component, and that's its beak, and it can squeeze through holes that are only marginally bigger than its brain. So it gives you quite a lot of extra capabilities that you don't get with existing rigid robots. And... Does this mean then that there is a, no limit to what we could achieve with biomimicry? Do we just take what nature's already done and then mix all the different parts together and come up with an octopus that has an incredible power supply and incredible strength, or, or will there be limits? Well, there's no reason why you can't. Indeed, in our octopus project, we had suckers that were inspired by those found on squid because they work in a different way to the way an octopus's suckers work. Thank you very much to Richard Bonser, who is from Brunel University. Now, on to spiders. And while they're not to everyone's taste, and I must say I'm not a huge fan, they are one of the most promising creatures for biomimicry. And that's because they produce seven different types of silk, some super sticky, some super strong, and others super stretchy. These silks are polymers made from proteins which are mixed together in the spider's abdomen to produce what is one of the strongest substances we know of. In fact, the closest we've come to artificially recreating the characteristics of spider silk is something called aramid, which is used in bulletproof vests and bicycle tyres. But to make this fibre requires high temperatures and pressures, which means the process is polluting, expensive and inefficient. But a spider can make it at room temperature, on a diet of dead flies and water. So how do they do it? Greya Jackson went to the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire to speak to Anne Terry, who's trying to find out. Spider silk is remarkable because it's actually the toughest material we know. So that means that it's not just strong, but it's also very elastic. And in that way, it's able to absorb all the energy. If you think of a classic spider's web, a spider has to capture the prey as it hits that web. So that means it has to trap it. 
it has to stop it. And if you think some of these flies that are being caught in webs are so much bigger than the actual fibre that's catching them. And so it has to damp all of that energy. And so this means that you end up with a very, very tough material. So how does a spider make silk? So the spider produces these proteins in water in its body and then pass through a duct to the exit of the spider's abdomen. Now, a spider doesn't push the silk proteins out to make the fibre. A spider actually pulls them out. So a spider will glue down the silk that they want to produce and then walk away to draw the silk out. And within its body, what it does is it changes the pH of the solution. It changes the metal ions and the salts which are involved in giving the protein its shape and how it folds. And at the same time, starting to elongate the molecules and stretch them so they're able to come together to form these close links they need to actually make a fibre. I always thought of it as a bit like a spool, like on a sewing machine that pulls it out. But obviously going from a liquid or a gel into a solid, it's much more complex than that. Yeah, so it's actually produced on demand. It's not stored as a reeled-up fibre in the body. And the spider produces up to seven different types of silk, all from different exits, all from different little spinnerets. And they all have a different chemical constituency. They have a different sequence of amino acids, that means. They're produced in very slightly different ways, so the shape of the storage gland and the duct is different and that leads to different mechanical properties so some are highly elastic some are sticky some are these super tough fibres so in one naturally occurring system we have the ability to look at all of these ranges of properties How do you physically look at them? Are you using a microscope? So we've been using a technique called small angle neutron scattering So what we're looking at is the actual size and shape of the proteins in the solution. And then from that information, we then change in some way the chemical constituency of that solution. We might change its pH, we might change the amount of salt in the solution, and then look and see how that has influenced the silk proteins. And all of those things help us to build up a picture of how the spider might be controlling the silks in situ in their abdomen there's a tiny teeny spinous web next to us on the bench i'm looking at it and you we're all familiar with that feeling when you walk through the garden and you walk into a spider's web so you can sort of feel the loose strings on it how strong is it to even feel one of the small spider's webs is remarkable that fiber in that web is at least 20 times thinner than a human hair if not more And so the webs that we deal with, the spiders that we use, are actually what's called the golden orb web spider. And they spin a silk that is so strong that as you put your hand up, it can really resist your hand. So where do you keep all these orb spiders? So we have greenhouses. Imagine what these greenhouses are like. Spiders eat flies, so these are greenhouses filled with spiders and flies so they're not a particularly nice environment to go into but we go in and we collect a spider and then we take them down to our lab and literally we can immobilize them on a small board and then actually collect the silk from the abdomen by winding it up onto mechanical bobbin now the beauty of this means we can actually sometimes reel them very fast sometimes very slow and look at how the properties change as we do that How much silk can you 
get from one spider? We're talking about very, very little silk. So a female spider can reel hundreds of metres of silk, but it's at such a fine fibre. So although you might reel a lot, it's actually not a lot of material. So how might we be able to one day hopefully either, I suppose, manufacture it or produce it somehow synthetically? Well, that's being looked at. So there are um, groups who are looking at how you could make silk proteins. And so they will try and put the silk proteins into plants and things like that. But you still need to be able to process them into something useful. Harnessing something of this power, of this strength, surely means there's got to be lots of really interesting applications. If we could reproduce something like spider silk. Yeah, and a huge range of applications as well. So everything from applications where you need something very lightweight. You could think of lightweight tethers for space applications right through to there's very good impact resistance if you are able to build composites from silk with another material. So then you might start thinking of impact resistance. Um, But also there's a lot of medical applications as well because the body has a very low immunoresponse to silk. Silk has been used as sutures before now. And so you can actually start looking at making ligaments and tendons vascular applications for silk we're also interested in whether we could actually extend the range of properties to be even more useful for certain applications for us as well dr anne terry from the rutherford appleton laboratory she was speaking with Greer jackson you're listening to the naked scientists with chris smith and me Ginny smith now from spiders that eat insects to insects themselves Humans and other mammals collect sounds using their eardrums, which vibrate, and these vibrations are transferred through three tiny bones called ossicles to a structure in the inner ear, which is called the cochlea, and this converts sound waves, quite literally, into brain waves. But it turns out that insects might be able to teach us a thing or two about sensing sounds and even show us how to build super small microphones and hearing aids. And this is the brainchild of Professor Daniel Robert, who's a researcher at the University of Bristol and joins us down the line. Right, tell us first of all, how do insects hear and how does it differ from how we hear? Well, insects hear through tiny little organs, tiny little ears that also have eardrums that are structured a bit differently. What's interesting about insects is their diversity. Ears virtually everywhere on their body, from the wings of some butterflies, the chest of some flies, and the legs even of some crickets. And when you say you can find little ears there, if you look at those hearing organs, how do they differ from my ears? First of all, they're much smaller. The cochlea you have is roughly a centimetre across. Uh, these ears are down to half a millimetre or even smaller sometimes. Now, they're also structured very differently. Even though they do the same job for those of the crickets, for instance, their ears are structured in a way that we, we couldn't imagine before. Now, we talked about these three tiny bones, the ossicles, hammer, anvil and the stirrup in a human. Do insects have tiny bones as well? For us, in order to convert the acoustic wave that is in the air and push that energy into the cochlea, we require that amplification that the middle ear bones are generating. Some sort of a clever three-part leverage system, which is quite complicated. In insects, we don't find that. In these particular crickets, what we find is a simple lever system that does that amplification, 
but in a much, much simpler way anatomically. So, and that's kind of an exception. And we were pretty excited to find that because that gives us a particular solution to the same problem of amplification, but with a much simpler system. When you say a lever system, this would be a bit like jacking up a car. You'd Basically, you put one thing under the car wheel and then have a very long handle, and you're basically making the job much easier to do by having a very long handle. The insects are turning these low-energy sound waves into vibrations in their hearing organ by having this similar sort of lever system. Exactly, that's a good description. Because with a very small force at one end of the lever, you generate a very large force at the other end. But a large force has a long displacement, if you want, and the other side has a short displacement. But no matter what, your car is going to be lifted. The same principle applies to shifting these uh, these vibrations into the inner ear of the insect. And that works for an awful lot of frequencies, which is the beauty about it. You can have lower frequencies and higher frequencies. So there we learn a lot about how these systems, having evolved for 200 million years, can be very efficient at capturing sound in a way that we'd never imagined before. So your goal would be to take the structure of what a grasshopper uses to pick up sound waves and convert them into nerve signals and copy that so that you could instead have, for instance, a tiny microphone. Exactly, exactly. We want to be inspired by the process that evolution has come up with. And maybe more excitingly even is to borrow one process from a grasshopper, another process from a fly, another from a butterfly, and make some sort of a chimera, a mix between these different processes that are good at different things, detecting the direction of sound, detecting a nice amplitude, being being very sensitive, or, as we said before, being able to push that to some form of cochlea to do an analysis of the different pitch of the sound. So with that, we can generate tiny microphones, we hope, that will emulate what we've learned from the tiny ears of insects. Why do you think insects have evolved to use this system and we evolved another system that what you're saying is turns out to be less good than what the insects have got? What we know about insects is that they have under their skin just about everywhere, mechanoreceptors, that means the little cells, the little neurons that are sensitive to tiny vibrations. So what insects have as an advantage, having the skeleton outside, as opposed to us, is that they can just thin a bit of their skin over here, make a little lever over there, they're very modular, and they're very flexible in their anatomy, one other diversity. So as a result, what we observe today is a series of different solutions to the same kind of if you want, engineering problem, which is uh, the detection of sound. So our ears are are deep down into our skull and they are embedded in a vast amount of fluid. For insects, this is not the case. They're much smaller and much lighter, which which allows them to be much more sensitive and, and accurate. But given how tiny they are, this means that they will respond very well to high-frequency sounds, I would presume. But does that mean that were you to make a microphone modelling or based on the insect structure, it would have a problem detecting lower frequency, bigger wavelength sound waves. The insects are very happy to listen to high frequencies up to 150 kilohertz, reminding you that we stop at 15 or 20 kilohertz as humans. So insects are, are very good, these particular crickets, at, uh, at measuring the, the sounds that come from bats. So what we do there is extract the knowledge, if you want, and then push this data into mathematical model in a computer. And then we start another process of optimization where we ask, basically, that system we have by modifying ever so slightly some bits of the system, like the eardrum, 
to respond to lower frequencies. We're trying to adapt that to lower frequencies to make that compatible with human voice, human hearing, response to sound. And how do you build a plastic model of an insect here? Well, for this, we use new tools that have um, been available now for, for a little while that come from nanotechnology. Some very fancy 3D printers that can print very tiny structures. So we use that, scale it up a little bit, and build little little organs that are half a millimeter or a millimeter across that emulate the shape and the form of these, of these insect ears. And then we do the same test again, as we did with the true insect. And if you are successful and you can produce these miniature microphones... What application will you have for them and why will they be better than what we currently have? Our hope here is to be able to borrow the best of different species, make a microphone that will work a little bit like a cricket ear and then incorporate what the fly is doing with sound for directionality and then and then at the end perhaps have a microphone or two or three or perhaps ten in one package and put it in a hearing aid to be able to do what we call auditory scene analysis. A microphone that would be clever enough, intelligent enough in the in the biomimetic sense to detect sounds that perhaps normal microphones with just one membrane are not able to detect. So we're we're getting there, we're not quite there yet, but we think that we have here a solution inspired by nature that could be useful for auditory processes indeed. Terrific stuff, and I wish you luck. That's bio-nanoscientist Daniel Robert. He's at the University of Bristol where he's making these teeny tiny microphones. We will listen out for the announcement that he's been successful. Thank you, Daniel. The natural environment is full of complex processes and one species' trash can be another one's treasure. This closed-loop system where nothing goes to waste might be a way to solve problems like climate change, landfill and pollution. Michael Porwin looks to nature to make new sustainable architectural environments. For his latest endeavour, the Sahara Forest Project, he began by observing one special species of beetle. And Michael joins us now. So... This must have been a pretty impressive beetle if you based a whole project on it. What can it do? It, it is a pretty impressive beetle, actually, because it's uh, evolved a way of harvesting its own fresh water in a desert. And that is pretty remarkable. And uh, the way it does that is that it comes out of its hiding place at night. It crawls to the top of a sand dune. And then because it's got a matte black shell and it's very lightweight, it's able to radiate heat out to the night sky and become slightly cooler than its surroundings. So then when the moist breeze blows in off the sea, you get these little droplets of water forming on the beetle's shell. Just before the sun comes up, it tips its shell up, the water runs down to its mouth, it has a good drink and goes off and hides for the rest of the day. And the ingenuity, if you could call it that, goes even further because if you look carefully at the beetle's shell, it's covered in little tiny bumps and those are hydrophilic, they attract water and between them there's a waxy finish which repels water. And the effect of that is that as the droplets form on those bumps, they stay in very tight spherical form which means they're much more mobile than they would be if it was just a mist over the whole shell. So it's an example of an amazing adaptation to a very resource-constrained environment. And more and more over the next few decades, we're going to be facing resource constraints. And so I think it's a good example of just how much biomimicry has to offer. So how have you copied this kind of shell to make something that's useful for humans? Yeah, sure. Well, I think maybe we need to just sort of back up a little bit um, because we were trying to do a number of things on this project. Uh, we, We wanted to develop an idea that would address multiple challenges simultaneously. Here we wanted to develop an integrated solution that addressed um, climate change, uh, water in in desert regions, uh, generating clean energy, and so on. 
And um, we also had a hunch that the world's deserts could be part of the clue to providing our future energy needs. Because if you look at the amount of energy that falls on the, the world's deserts, it's really phenomenal. And if we could just capture a small amount of that, that would go a long way to solving our own energy needs. Looking at an extreme environment like a desert and you're interested in biomimicry, then you can learn a lot from the organisms that have already adapted to life there. So that was where the fog basking beetle came in. And that led us to develop a type of greenhouse which is cooled and humidified with seawater. And then it condenses a certain amount of that humidity as fresh water in a process that's effectively identical to the beetle. And by making a cool, humid growing environment, it means that the plants would actually need far less water to grow because it's humid, so they transpire less. And then we could actually uh, create a fair amount of fresh water to supply those plants with water. So we've been talking about a sort of closed loop design. and How's that different to the way most things are currently built and designed? Conventional human-made systems tend to be fairly simple, linear and disconnected. And in biology, it's, it's completely different. They tend to be much more complex systems, which are very interconnected and much more cyclical. In ecosystems, the waste from one part of that system nearly always becomes the, the input or the nutrient for something else in that system. But the natural world is so complicated and interconnected. Can we ever really build anything that's going to work like that? It would be very difficult to immediately try and create a fully functioning ecosystem. But what is much more straightforward is to look at how we can adapt our conventional approaches to move more towards the characteristics of ecosystems. Rather than just having a single technology in a particular place, you can look at what the inputs and outputs of that technology are. And then you can see what other kind of technologies you can combine with it. So, for instance, on the Sahara Forest Project, we had the greenhouse and then we looked at what other kind of technologies that would be synergistic with that. And we settled on concentrated solar power, um, which does have some very interesting synergies. Uh, Both the greenhouse and concentrated solar power work very well in hot, sunny deserts. Uh, The the, um, concentrated solar power actually benefits from seawater cooling. It's as much as 10% more productive in terms of energy. We could make use of all that waste heat to evaporate more seawater in the greenhouse and potentially create more fresh water. And then furthermore, the shade created by those mirrors would um, allow us to grow a whole range of crops underneath in the shade that would not grow in normal regions. So it's a way in which we could create a a system for growing zero-carbon food in some of the most water-stressed parts of the planet, creating abundant renewable energy and revegetating areas of desert. That sounds amazing. And obviously it works really well in a desert where there's lots of sun and that sort of thing. But it's not really going to work here in England, for example, where it's cooler and more temperate. What you have to do is look at the uh, existing climate and the, the resources that you have around. And there's a fantastic scheme up in Yorkshire called the Cardboard to Caviar Project, which, um, well, the the simplest way of describing it is that they collected cardboard from shops and restaurants. They then shredded that and sold it to equestrian centres as horse bedding. When that was soiled, they were paid again to collect it, the, the manure and the cardboard. They put it into wormery composting systems, which produced worms, which they fed to Siberian sturgeon, which produced caviar, which they sold back to the restaurants. So it's a, it's a very neat example of what was a linear, wasteful system becoming a cyclical system and also creating far more value. So they were paid at various stages along that way. That sounds amazing. We can take something that otherwise would have been thrown away and turn it into something really expensive and that people really want 
Yeah, the the caviar example is a nice sort of example <laughs> of alchemy, really, turning something uh, that's of such low value as uh, cardboard into ultimately caviar. And then there were a lot of other things that became part of that system. So um, they actually uh, transformed quite a lot of industrial land. Uh, they re- rejuvenated that. They planted crops that would allow them to run a biomass boiler that would keep the fish nice and warm in, in winter so they'd carry on growing. They also started growing crops that they could use to to make fish food. And they found that there was a a bakery nearby that was throwing away a lot of mouldy bread. And so they used that to grow maggots, which was another foodstuff for the fish. Fascinating. That was Michael Paulin, founder of Exploration Architecture, talking about his efforts in sustainable design. And thanks also to our other guests, including Eric Wolfe, Richard Bonzer and Daniel Robert. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. This week, Greer Jackson is buzzing with excitement about our question of the week. This week, we've been all in a buzz in the search to discover the answer to this question. This is Gert Grobler from South Africa. And my question is, if you should accidentally relocate an ant or a bee in your car, for example, would they join another colony or would they simply just die? What an interesting question. So can an outsider, transported, for instance, from one park to another, ever stand a chance of being accepted into a completely new family? For the answer to this mind-bugging question, we spoke to Henry Ferguson Gow, a PhD student from the Zoological Society of London. Generally, when a lost worker tries to enter a foreign colony, it will be treated with aggression. This is because the invading ant or bee would most likely be unrelated to the workers and queen of the new colony. So individuals in the same colony are very closely related, as most are born from the same queen mother. But does that really matter? Being closely related is the glue that holds a colony together, and an unrelated individual would have no evolutionary interest in working to raise the offspring of their adopted queen. Instead, they would exploit the resources of the colony, or worse, start laying their own eggs. So it would seem a lost bee, taken far away from their home hive, in a car for example, wouldn't have much hope of being adopted by another colony. Is there any hope for a long lost bee then? Sometimes nest mate recognition systems fail. For example, rogue buff-tailed bumblebees have been documented drifting between unrelated nests in the wild. In general, an unrelated interloper is not tolerated. So it would seem that at least maybe some bees will find a warm welcome waiting for them in a new hive. So try not to feel too guilty if you accidentally kidnap one in your car. Let's just hope it doesn't sting you in revenge. Thanks, Henry. Next week, we're trying to unlock the key to Anthony Baggett's question about super safe passwords. Hi, I'm Anthony from London. What makes a good password that is hard to hack? What do you think? Greer Jackson, and if you've got some ideas or feedback for us, then you can find us on Facebook, get in touch via Twitter at Naked Scientists, or you can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. That is it for this week. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson and Hannah Tooley for production, and I do hope you'll join us next week when we're delving into the murky world of computer hacking and cyber security. We'll find out why Wi-Fi could be placing your data in the hands of criminals, and was that Word document that someone sent you recently really what you thought it was, or was there some malicious computer code lurking inside it? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. I'm Chris Smith. This is RN, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? 
Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.